a mustard catastrophe, Worcestershire sauce with figs, and funky ketchup. This week, it's all about condiments. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is where food and travel come together at DestinationEatDrink.com, on the Destination Eat Drink YouTube channel, and here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This week, we're talking condiments with author Dara Goldstein. But first, if you enjoy the Destination Eat Drink podcast, I've got a lot more food and travel for you at DestinationEatDrink.com. I just published a story about a Portuguese donut and how it's linked to JFK. You can read that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I also just posted a new video. This one's about the delicious pastries of Beja, Portugal, including one shaped like a pig. You can see that by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or by going to YouTube at DestinationEatDrink946. Dara Goldstein is the founding editor of Gastronomica and the author of Beyond the North Wind, Russia in History and Lore, which was named one of the best cookbooks of 2020 by Forbes.com, Esquire, and the Washington Post. Her latest project is a six-volume set called Preserved, which she co-wrote with Courtney Burns and Richard Martin. Condiments is the first volume and is available wherever books are sold. We talk about red hoisin plum sauce, and its origin is a fish sauce, the fascinating story of ketchup, the Georgian version of salsa, and purifying the house with black salt. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Dara Goldstein, co-author of Preserved, Volume 1 Condiments, Volume 2 Fruit, it's great to have you on Destination Eat Drink. I'm so glad to get to talk to you about this wonderful, interesting topic. I'm really glad to be here. I want to start with volume one. It's called uh, Preserved Condiments. And I think it might be interesting to start this conversation by how you define a condiment, because I imagine it's a pretty big net that we're casting here. Yeah, uh, we wanted to start the series with condiments because it's really the basis of so many different flavors all over the world. And the word in English comes from the Latin condire, which simply means to preserve or to season. So if you think back to that original meaning, the first condiment really is salt. And we know that even in sweet baked goods, if you add a little bit of salt, it just heightens the flavor incredibly. If you're trying to preserve foods, it draws moisture out of them. And so it enables something that might otherwise rot uh, to last a lot longer. I'm talking to you from Portugal, and salt is super important here. Where we live, it used to be a, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, it was a Roman outpost. 2,500 years ago, it was a Phoenician outpost. And one of the main reasons they came here was for fishing and for salt. They made, uh, you know, they would uh, make uh, salt flats and use that to preserve the fish. That's how important salt was uh, back in that day. And then fast forward to today, 
the main dish of Portugal is uh, bacalao, which is dried cod. And how is it preserved? With salt. Yes. So that is the most perfect example. So since that original use of salt, the word condiment has expanded into referring really to any savory, piquant, exciting, zesty accompaniment to a basic food that uh, will bring it to additional life. So would you consider, when I think of condiments, you know, the thing that first pops into my brain, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so I think ketchup and mustard, I think of uh, sort of pasty, liquidy type things. But would you also include, I guess since we're including salt, you would also include, you know, shaking type condiments as well. Does that fall under your category of condiments? Yeah, I think that um, we're trying to conceive of condiments pretty broadly as anything that um, adds this additional flavor, but also something that has been uh, where you've taken the original ingredient that you're using and processed it, uh, processed not necessarily being a bad word as in processed foods, but worked with it to turn it into something else that is long lasting. And I also just want to add, since we're talking about condiments broadly, one of the great joys of working on this book was just thinking about how cultures throughout the world have their own condiments, which are very culturally distinct and symbolic. And I think that's a really beautiful thing because um, you can understand cultural identity if you are interested in food as you are and I am, and I know your listeners are, you can really zero in on that through looking at the condiments that different culinary cultures use. Great point, Dara. You know, the mantra of this podcast is food is culture, culture is food. And, you know, I, I brought up the the condiment in a shaker because uh, a couple of years ago, I had C.J. Chenier on the uh, podcast. He's uh, the crown prince of Zydeco. He's a very uh, well-known uh, Zydeco musician from Louisiana. And he told me that when he travels around on tour, him and the band, he doesn't go anywhere without Tony's Creole seasoning. <laughs> they put it on everything and he makes sure because he doesn't want to be caught without. Um, so it got to me, it got me to thinking, you know, you wrote this book about condiments. Do you ever travel with condiments? You know, um, I love that question, Brent, but I have to say I don't. And there's a a simple reason for that. I think I tend more towards the liquid condiments and with, um, you know, all the restrictions on what you can bring in your luggage, or even if it's a really tiny bottle of a hot sauce, like those mini bottles of Tabasco, which honestly isn't my favorite, but um, I don't want to travel with anything that's going to call attention to myself or what else is in my luggage. <laughs> but the real, the real reason is that part of my joy in traveling is to experience new flavors and things that I don't know. So even if I have a beloved condiment, I don't want to take a, a piece of myself and my habits with me. I want to shed them. When I go someplace and I might find myself longing for, oh, I wish I had a little bit of this or that. 
but mostly I want to immerse myself in what I'm um, encountering in another place. So no, I don't bring any with me. One last thing that I want to talk about, about condiments in general, because you brought up, you said Tabasco, not really my favorite. Fair enough. I'm wondering, are there commercially produced condiments that you like, that you gravitate towards, that you enjoy? You know, there are, but it's been quite interesting working on this book. For instance, I uh, often use Worcestershire sauce. I can't imagine a Bloody Mary, <laughs> for instance, without Worcestershire sauce. Right. But after having tasted the homemade Worcestershire sauce, and this was a recipe developed by my co-author, Courtney Burns, I feel as though I can't go back to uh, Lee and Perrin's, for instance, because ours is has so much more depth and so many more nuanced flavors. The same thing happened with ketchup. I mean, I uh, we always have ketchup around. We're American and <laughs> you can't really have a household without ketchup in this country, I don't think. But after making our bumper crop ketchup that uh, first ferments the tomato paste and really reduces it down to its very essential tomatoey flavor and then lets it ferment so it gets a little bit of funk and then adding the vinegar and all the spices and letting that uh, prepared ketchup also ferment for four or five days. My husband now won't eat any other ketchup. <laughs> and so every summer, it's like scrambling to get the tomatoes from the garden. They have to uh, dehydrate into the paste over several days. It's really a production, but the end result is truly awesome. And so I feel like it's brought me back to certain essential flavors, but also to older methods of uh, past times when preserving wasn't the kind of luxury it is for us now. Now it's more of a project and it's something we do as an enhancement as opposed to something that we absolutely have to do in order to survive, at least for you know, someone like me um, living, a, you know, a pretty privileged life in 21st century America. So I feel like it connected me to the past. And that's been quite beautiful. When we lived in Rhode Island, we had a decent sized piece of property and we had a little hobby farm there. And one of the things that we did with our with our tomatoes was to make our own ketchup. And my girlfriend, she had this recipe that I loved where she, um, it almost added an Indian flavor to it because she would add uh, cardamom to the ketchup oh. and it was, it was divine, but I, I'm a big ketchup fan. I love it. And I think sometimes ketchup is kind of looked down upon as low class by foodies, but it it's, to me, it's one of the perfect condiments because you've got sweetness You've got umami, you've got some sourness from the vinegar, and I use it in marinades all the time. But I was fascinated reading your book on the history of ketchup. There were so many interesting events, and one of them I remember because I was in high school in 1981 when Reagan tried to call ketchup, a, classify ketchup as a vegetable, and 
Yeah. He kind of became a laughing stock on. I remember Johnny Carson making fun of Reagan relentlessly over that. Um, but some of this other stuff I wasn't aware of, like the uh, ketchup war in Canada. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, people think, or many people associate ketchup with America, but uh, your story about the cardamom that your girlfriend was adding to the ketchup, uh, ketchup actually uh, was encountered by British sailors, you know, in their colonial quests uh, in Southeast Asia and brought uh, back to England. And there it became a very chic condiment, um, particularly in the 18th century. And the original ketchups that people were making were from mushrooms. Uh, We have a recipe for that in our book green walnuts, oysters. If you think about Chinese oyster sauce, you know it doesn't taste particularly like oysters. There's sort of this aftertaste. Um, So they were using ingredients that uh, they had easily accessible. Tomato ketchup didn't become a thing really until the 19th century. And the very thick stuff that we know and love was late 19th century. So it's not even that old as a condiment, if you think of it in relative terms. What happened in America is that I think ketchup was better, I guess is the the gentle word that I would choose, until they started adding high fructose corn syrup to it instead of cane sugar. In Canada, it is still made with cane sugar. And uh, we live about four hours from Montreal. So (laughs) sometimes we go there when we can't uh, go to Europe, you know, oh, let's go to Montreal. We'll feel like we're in Europe. (laughs) And we would always bring back a a jar of um, Heinz ketchup from Canada because it tasted so much better. But there were these ketchup wars in um, really not that many years ago. In 2014, Heinz closed a big ketchup factory that was in Ontario, Canada, and a lot of people lost their jobs. And there was tremendous anger that was exacerbated simply because, you know, it was an American country and there's uh, tension sometimes between Canada and the States. And so what I think is a really nice ironic twist is that French's, the French's uh, company, which is known in the United States for making mustard, French's moved into the Canadian market to make ketchup. And of course, mustard and ketchup are the big rivals, but they made their ketchup and marketed it as being all Canadian. So the tomatoes came from Canada. Everything came from Canada, though I doubt that all the spices originated there. And um, in 2018, there was still enough anger against American ketchup that uh, a tariff of 10% was levied on all ketchup that was imported from the United States to keep the Canadian ketchup market strong. So those were the Canadian ketchup wars. Fascinating. You know, um, you mentioned Worcestershire sauce as well. And this reminded me, talking about ketchup and Worcestershire sauce, 
when we were in Berlin, we got a dish called currywurst. And oh, the, yeah. the sauce that that's made with is ketchup, Worcestershire sauce, and curry powder. And it's so good that I still, to this day, will add a little sprinkle of uh, curry and maybe a little Worcestershire sauce and stir it up with my ketchup just to dunk in my French fries or whatever. I love it. Oh, so I love curry verse too. And have you ever read the German novel, The Invention of Currywurst? No, but it sounds great. Yeah, it, it's very short. It's really more of a novella. And the author is Uwe Tim, T-I-M-M. And um, it is about post-war, post-World War II um, Germany. And it's really good. I recommend it as you're eating your French fries dipped in uh <laughs> Curry burst sauce. It's so good. Um, you know, speaking of Worcestershire sauce, I I love your recipe in the book for Worcestershire sauce. You include figs in your Worcestershire sauce, which totally makes sense when you think about it, but it was something that I never conceived of before. Is is adding figs, is using figs in your recipe, is that a new or traditional idea, because I don't think I've ever seen figs listed as an ingredient in a commercial Worcestershire sauce that I've seen, at least. No, but you might find raisins, and it's basically to the same effect. Oh, yeah. So it's giving a fruitiness to it and a slight sweetness. So that's really, it's our recipe calls for just two tablespoons of them, but that's what that does. So we also use molasses. First, a bit of sweetness gives it just the tiniest bit of a fruity edge. The recipes in this book are phenomenal, and I can't wait to uh, start digging into them even even deeper. But you mentioned uh, ketchup and mustard going together, the French's company. And in your book, you talk about the great mustard catastrophe of 2022. I was around in 2022, but I don't remember this. What was the great mustard catastrophe of 2022? That's probably because you weren't living in France. Okay. I wasn't either. I think um, that was still when the pandemic was raging. But when I read about it in the paper, I think it even made the New York Times. I thought, oh, this is so interesting because it shows how deeply embedded in a culture a condiment can be and how in many ways we don't really think about uh, the foods that we eat. We just kind of accept them and love them or hate them. So with mustard, um, it is very much a part of French culture. And I started looking into the history there. And in um, the 18th century, the Grey Poupon, Great Poupon, you know, uh, company was founded and they started making mustard had been known well before then, but they started making a really fine mustard with brown mustard seeds and adding wine. So you need a um, something acidic to activate the mustard seeds. And the Romans would use vinegar. Um, so the 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 French, of course, used wine and made it very elegant. And when Grey Poupon was introduced into the U.S. in the 1970s, the original 
a marketing campaign for it. It's quite embarrassing to watch because it says a lot about America at the time, but you can find it on YouTube. It's a guy getting into a Rolls Royce and he's being driven by a chauffeur and he's in the back seat and he's, I think, in a tuxedo and he's offered some food with grape poupon mustard. So it was seen as, you know, the height of elegance and luxury. It was since bought by Kraft, <laughs> you know, and it, it took quite a plunge, I think, in terms of its luxuriousness. But the French are still really proud of their mustards. And there are some other classic ones like Mai and uh, Pommery and others. So in 2022, because of the pandemic and also the supply chains being disrupted because of the war in Ukraine, and then climate change as well, suddenly mustard disappeared from French shelves. Uh, it, there was a real run on the remaining mustard, and then it wasn't available. And what the French, I mean, they were horrified <laughs> and really distraught. And what they discovered was that uh, the mustard seed was not being grown in France. Most of it came from Western Canada. Uh, you know, the great prairies there. And because of drought and the supply chain disruption, they weren't getting the mustard seed to make the mustard. So that really caught people up short. I think you can't overstate the importance of mustard in French cuisine. I just remember the first time we were in France and went into a big grocery store and there was a whole aisle dedicated to different kinds of mustards, different, uh, you know, different methods of preparation and different brands. And I just love one of my favorite things is just to go into a grocery store and see what folks are, you know, what they're eating, what they're enjoying, what they, uh, you know, what kinds of things are different that they get and sampling it. And we brought home a bunch of mustard with us. I, I didn't think going to France, we would end up with a suitcase full of mustard. But sure enough, we did first time we went. Oh, good for you. Speaking of something taking over a grocery store aisle, uh, red plum hoisin sauce. Um, I, I don't know exactly when it happened, but now you go into the Asian aisle in an American grocery store or you go into an Asian market and um, red plum hoisin sauce is everywhere. Um, when did this happen and when did this become so popular? You know, I can't pinpoint it, but I think that at least in the United States, um, Asian food is now pretty mainstreamed and people are quite familiar with it. And they're wanting perhaps a little more nuance in the choices that are available. So uh, companies have gotten, commercial companies have gotten in on the act so that uh, they can sell to a broader public and not simply in uh, stores that are catering to Asian populations like uh, H-Mart or some smaller uh, mom and pop stores. Hoisin is really an interesting one for you to bring up. And again, doing um, these deep dives into the past, which is one of my great pleasures in life, thinking about foods and where they come from and how they've migrated throughout the world. It turns out that 
the original hoisin, which is from southeastern China, was made with dried or fermented seafood. Hmm. So like um, the very old uh, fish sauces or the Roman garum, which was made with anchovies. These are condiments that are thousands of years old. And what the fish does is give that sort of uh, umami taste that is very mouth-filling and savory and salty and all of those wonderful things. The fish dropped out over time, probably because it was an expensive ingredient and not as readily available. So the base for hoisin sauce for centuries now has been dushi, which is uh, fermented black beans. And we have a recipe for black bean sauce that is so delicious. I really kind of spoon that, you know, right out of the jar. It's so good. So if you take a, a black bean sauce and then add additional ingredients to it, including dried red plums to add this wonderfully fruity flavor to it and spices, then you can get the hoisin sauce. We, in our recipe, use um, Angelino plums, which you won't find on a regular grocery store shelf, but they're readily available online. And it's just a variety of plum that has a little bit more acidity to it. So uh, I think it makes for a livelier sauce. You know, you're inspiring me now because there was a time I told you we used to make our own ketchup. Um, you know, we made all kinds of stuff like that. We had a whole basement that was just filled with uh, whether it was condiments or jams or jellies or just just preserved tomatoes for that matter. And um, now I don't have that that huge kitchen or that basement anymore. But I still I want I want to do this. And um, a lot of these recipes are very easy to do. So I think uh, I think folks will enjoy it. Um, I did want to talk to you a little bit about Georgia. And when we talk about Georgia, we're talking about, just to be clear, we're talking about the Republic of Georgia, not the state. Uh, you've written a bunch of books, including one called The Georgian Feast. So I guess it must have been required that you would have a recipe for uh, Adjika in your book, right? Yeah, I couldn't leave it out. I am so in love with Georgian food, and I'm about to head there for a month in January. Oh, wow. Really excited to see if there are some new flavors that I'll encounter there. Ajika is, uh, just to make an easy comparison, it is a Georgian salsa. If we tend to think of salsa as uh, Mexican, obviously, given the name, but uh, I think the, the go-to image is that it's made with tomatoes, or maybe you have a salsa verde that's made with tomatillos. But the Georgian one has a base of herbs and hot peppers or bell peppers. You can make it as mild or hot as you want, but I think the best ajika, you know, has a good amount of spiciness to it. And it uses a lot of fresh herbs, um, particularly cilantro, basil, and dill. And then it has dried herbs, uh, you know, turning into spices like coriander, summer savory, and 
blue fenugreek, which gives it a very distinctive Georgian flavor. They love blue fenugreek there. And it uh, turns up in a lot of different spice mixtures that they have. You know, we started this conversation about uh, volume one of preserved condiments about salt. And I think we, we didn't talk about black salt. Should we, uh, should we talk about that as well? Yeah, that was another one I really needed to sneak into the book. This is a salt from Russia, a very traditional salt. And I find it interesting. I'd never thought about it when I first encountered it many, many years ago. I'd never thought about it in terms of uh, current ideas about nutrition. They're very popular in the United States. So I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was all of this talk about uh, charcoal yes, and how charcoal is really good for you. Well, black salt is basically a salt that has been charred so deeply that it becomes charcoal salt. But it has, uh, originally, it was done for religious purposes. The Thursday before Easter, which is the most important holiday in the Russian Orthodox Church, there was a ritual of um, taking the salt and putting it into the great Russian masonry stove, which is a, a big wood-burning oven, and uh, making it. And then it was used to purify the house before Easter and the resurrection, and then used sparingly throughout the year as a kind of medicinal salt. So if Either you could use it maybe to stave off uh, ills, or if you weren't feeling well, you would take a little bit of it. So it wasn't like your everyday condiment, especially because salt was extremely expensive in Russia until, uh, you know, just not that long ago, a couple centuries ago. So, uh, it has uh, this wonderful flavor. You make it by uh, taking the sediment that's left over from making kvass. So this is a many layered preserved uh, salt. You can make it with fresh rye bread that you allow to go stale. So you don't have to do anything as elaborate as this, but um, Russians would use rye bread add water to it, a little bit of honey, and ferment that into a slightly alcoholic, very fizzy beverage called kvass. I don't know if you've ever tasted it. No, I've heard of this though. Yeah, it's like a light beer. So then you have this sediment uh, when you strain off the water that has become the, the drink. You have this sediment and that's what you bake. Uh, and char in a very, very hot oven to make, uh, you mix it with salt, and then that makes the black salt. So it uh, has some nutrients to it. Uh, for this recipe, we added kombu, which is uh, a dried seaweed. They make it this way in the Russian North, but you can also make it with um, oats. I have a recipe for an oat based black salt in my cookbook, Beyond the North Wind, which is all about the cooking of the Russian North. But it's really fun to make. You uh, take it out of the oven after having baked it for 
uh, 30 minutes at 500 degrees. <laughs> and then I always, it sounds like, are you living in an apartment, Brent? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you couldn't just race it out the front door before the smoke alarm goes off. <laughs> it, you know, I think you could take it out and immediately put a, you know, a metal bowl or something over it so that the smoke doesn't fill the apartment. But it, it's one that's really fun to make. And this has a, a lovely flavor. Well, uh, Dara, it's just been great talking to you about your book, uh, Preserved, Volume 1, Condiments. And there's a volume two as well. I would love to have you back next week to talk about volume two because fruits is a, another huge topic when we're talking about uh, preserving food. So would you etch out a little bit of time for us and uh, come back and talk about volume two with us? Oh, sure. It would be a great pleasure. It's really fun talking to you. Okay. I love having smart people on the show like Dara. So glad she'll be back next week to talk about volume two of her series, Preserving Fruit. You can get the books on Amazon or wherever books are sold. I've got links in the show notes. Well, that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review Destination Eat Drink on your podcast app and consider supporting the podcast with a couple of bucks at buymeacoffee.com slash Destination Eat Drink. And thank you very much. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>